You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. All right, so as we're talking about seeing, I want to ask a quick question. You ever, um, the answer is probably yes, but you ever had a moment in your life, think of one even, where you and somebody else were looking at the exact same thing, experiencing the exact same moment, and yet we're seeing it completely different? Probably never happened with your spouse, right? But like, have you had one of those moments? You think of one of those moments where you're experiencing something, you're looking at something, it's the exact same thing in the exact same moment, and both of you have a completely different perspective on it? Just say, yes, it's happened. So this last, uh, this last Christmas, my wife and I had planned in between like all the Christmas crazy of here and having a little bit of time off, we were going to take the kids up to Canada to go to Blue Mountain and do some snowboarding. So that was like... That was our plan. That was our R&R plan. It's been, I don't know, for weeks, I think, maybe a month or six weeks or so, a long time, we were planning for this. And around Kensington, when it hits the holidays, it gets nuts. So I was super looking forward to just the R&R, a little bit of time to recharge, kind of exit the world for a minute. Plus, some of our best friends are going to be coming with their kids. Uh, It was going to be the biggest mountain my daughters have ever snowboarded, because all they usually do is the stuff around here. And then my son, who just recently got married, and our new daughter-in-law were joining us. This was going to be our first trip with them as a family and them as a married couple. So just all kinds of reasons I was looking forward to this. Probably most of all, I just was looking forward to the break. Like even here, I think by like service five, I was like, it's all right, just get through service five. We're going to Blue Mountain in a couple days. It's going to be good. We're going to be able to break. Well... A couple days before we left, if you weren't paying attention, it wasn't good weather, and we started getting reports from Blue Mountain that it wasn't good weather there either. So we're like, well, we already rented a house. We don't really have a choice. We got to go anyways. And I'm thinking, it's not going to be great conditions, but whatever, we'll make the best of it. So we left. And six hours later, we pulled into the driveway at Blue Mountain. And in the parking lot, this is what we saw. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, that's not just bad. That's pretty awful. Now, in a moment like this, people have two different responses typically. Maybe there's more. I'm just going to go over two. One is to be super positive. You're going to think about all the things you can make of this moment to make it better. And then there's me. And I was not positive at all. Like, have you ever had the moment where you feel like the entire universe is against you? Like, you're just that self-absorbed. You're like, everything is against me. The whole universe is against me. It hates me. I, like, we had already had a couple of weird stops on the way of our six-hour drive into Canada. And I was already like, oh, I can't wait to get back to the U.S. And so I'm, like, immediately like, Canada must have overheard me. And now Canada is against me. Like, I literally was like, Canada's against me. The world is against me. The universe is against me. When I was a kid, my dad used to call these moments pouties. He's like, oh, Craig's throwing a pouty. And so let's invite Mr. Sad and Mr. Mad. And I was like, Dad, shut your mouth, Dad. And, but that's what he'd do whenever we would pout about anything. He's like, it's a pouty. Well, I was throwing a massive pouty in the front of my truck. I was just, I mean, and everybody was invited. I had Mr. Mad. I had Mr. Sad. I had Mr. Cynical. I had Mr. I don't care that my kids are in the back seat paying attention to my attitude. Like, they were all invited to this party. And I was just ready to fight the universe in that moment. And then there's my wife, who's sitting next to me, and takes a second to remind me that the kids are watching my behavior, and then also says, hey, here's what I see. I see an opportunity for an adventure. And I was like, I see an opportunity for you to exit my vehicle. I was like, 
like, no, no, that was supposed to be the adventure. Listen, look at somebody next to you and just say this out loud, would you? Say, outlook changes outcome. My wife and I did not see this scenario the same, and I am, in hindsight, I am so glad that we didn't. She preemptively, knowing it was probably going to be worse than I was expecting it to be, she brought a bunch of board games. We are not a board game family. It's just not, I mean, some of you are like, you're amazing. Like, you guys sit down and you rock out the board games. Usually it ends with family therapy being desperately needed for us, so we're not a board game family. But somebody gave us a game over Christmas called Pit. Have you ever played Pit? Yeah. That game is awesome. You need to go get Pit. It will, well, it'll either make your family stronger or put you in therapy, but you'll have an experience one way or the other. So, I mean, we played all these board games. We had so much fun. And then my wife planned this hike. So she booked us on a hike that I'm in, I'm in the middle of my pouty. So I would have never thought, let's go hiking. What we didn't anticipate is that all the rain beforehand, probably hiking up to the top of Blue Mountain wasn't a great idea because it was pure mud. My daughter-in-law, who's not necessarily a super outdoorsy person at all, uh, wore a really nice coat down to her ankles and her new Bluntstones. Is that what they're called, Bluntstones? Blunt? I don't know, whatever, nice shoes. And uh, so she's like, this is not going to be fun. And I'm not lying, we were covered from head to toe in mud. People are slipping and falling. I got a video of my wife slipping and falling. I totally wanted to show that today. Didn't think I would be welcomed home afterwards, so that's not going on screen. But there's no picture of that because by the time we got back, everyone's just like shedding layers, kicking their boots off. I'm like, you are not riding in my truck. But we, I'm telling you, that created a memory more than if everything would have gone to plan. And it was 100% because... My wife had a different perspective than I had. And her outlook changed our outcome. Say it with me one more time. Outlook changes outcome. The Bible is full of examples of times where Jesus attempted to elevate the way his disciples and the people that followed him saw the situations around them. And I think that those weren't just moments for them. They're equally as much moments for us. And in one of those places, in one of those stories, super familiar for a lot of us, but it was a time that Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people with one kid's Happy Meal lunch. And I want to look at that for a minute because as we're talking about going into this next year and beginning to learn to try to see more with Jesus' eyes than our own eyes to lead us to his thoughts and his ways, I think there's a ton in this story that we can mine out of it that's helpful for us in understanding what it looks like to see the ordinary simple moments of our lives with a different set of eyes. So here's what I did. This is one of those passages in the Bible that's recorded in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, that's not always true about every story. Those are the four books that are exclusively about Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, what he did, who he was. So sometimes you'll have certain accounts in certain books, but not in others. And when you have one that's in every single book... You also have authors including a little bit different details at times. Not different in terms of conflicting, but just filling the picture out more. This is one of those, I think, if you read just one account, you don't get the fullest picture. And so I put it together in like a harmony. So all four of the readings together. So you're not going to find it if you try and follow along in your Bible unless you can like mad dash between all the Gospels at one time, which you can't. So it will be on your screen. But here's the account of the story as it goes from Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. When the apostles had returned, they gathered around Jesus and told him everything that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come with me privately to an isolated place and let's rest a while. For there were many coming and going, there was no time to even eat. So they went away by themselves in a boat 
to a remote place near a town called Bethsaida on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. But a large crowd was following Jesus because they were observing the miraculous signs that he was performing on the sick. And many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they hurried on foot, and all of the towns came and arrived there ahead of them. And as Jesus came to shore, he saw a large crowd, and he welcomed them. And he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. And Jesus taught them many things about the kingdom of God. He cured those who needed to be healed. And it was already late in the day, and Jesus' disciples came to him and said, this is an isolated place, and it's getting pretty late. So send them away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for themselves to eat and to find lodging. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. Well, where are we to buy bread so that these many people can eat? And Jesus had asked this and said this because he knew what he was going to do. It was a test. So Philip, one of the disciples, replied, 200 silver coins of bread wouldn't be enough for them to each get one of a little bit. So should we go and buy bread for 200 silver coins and give that to them to eat? And Jesus said to his disciples, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So one of the disciples, Jesus, one of the disciples of Jesus, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, found out what Jesus had said and went and looked. And what he found, he came back and reported. Here's a little boy who only has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these among so many people unless we go and buy food for all of them? And then Jesus directed them to sit down in groups on the grass. Now, there was a lot of grass in that place. And so they did as Jesus directed, and they sat in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up into heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples to serve to the people. And he divided them, the two fish among those who were seated, and they got as much as they wanted. And when they were all satisfied, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the broken pieces and the fish that was left over so that nothing is wasted. And so they gathered them up. They filled the 12 baskets with the broken pieces from the five barley loaves and the fish that was left over by the people who had not eaten. And not counting women and children, there were about 5,000 men who ate. I want to tell you really quickly why this is so important for me and how this has been speaking to me that I hope it will speak to all of us over the next couple minutes. I don't want to get to this point next year and be the exact same person I am right now. And I know that this is that time of year where we're all thinking that. And, and we're also aware that most of the time we get to this time of year and we're like, dang it, I'm exactly who I was last year. Or maybe we feel like we even took steps backwards. But I don't want to get to this time in 2025 and think the exact same way, and act the exact same way. I want to get to this time next year, and I want to be able to think more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to see more like Jesus. And some of you, maybe you don't. Some of you, maybe you're like, you know what, if I'm the exact same person in 2025 right now that I am today, I'm good. Great. Write a book. We'll buy it. We need to know what you've figured out. But for the rest of us, they're like, no, I would love to experience some transformation in my life this next year. And that transformation, just looking at what your neighbor does or copying some other person or reading the next self-help book. The Bible says that his ways are above all of our ways. His thoughts are above all of our thoughts. You want to experience real change? We need to become more like him. I don't want to get to the next year and be the exact same. And for that to happen, that means I have to start to see things differently. If I don't start to see more through the eyes of Christ, I'm not going to think with the mind of Christ. I'm not going to behave with the behavior of Christ. That's why this is so crucial and the things I want to look at that I think Jesus points out and challenges disciples to think differently in, it's not everything. 
But at the end of the day, our outlook, it will affect, and many times it will produce our outcome. And a couple of the areas that Jesus, I think, really exemplifies this and challenges with his disciples are right here in the story. For example, number one, where the disciples saw a problem, Jesus saw potential. Where the disciples see the problem of this massive group of people that now after a full day need to be fed, they're seeing the problem. Jesus sees the potential of what can happen here. And on one hand, it makes sense, right? The disciples, they're going, we, we have nothing. We have nothing to give them. There's a lot of them. Matter of fact, the text tells us 5,000 men. That doesn't count women. That doesn't count children. It's a weird way to count. It's a different day and age. That's how they counted. Most scholars think that when you add in the women and you add in the children, you're probably at 15, 20,000 people. That, y'all, that's Little Caesar's Arena. Imagine standing in the middle of Little Caesar's Arena, looking around, and every seat is full, and somebody says to you, it's your job to feed them before they go home, but every restaurant's closed. And all you've got is whatever's in your backpack. Like, this is a very real moment, which is why it makes sense that as the disciples look out at the crowd, all they see is a problem, which is why their conclusion is, we should probably send them away. The thing is, though, their problem that they see, listen, is connected to the location that they're in. The text tells us that they're in a desolate place. So they're in a separate place. They're in a deserted place. Their response would have been very different if they were in Rome, maybe. If they were in some big metropolis or if they were in an area surrounded by food trucks. But they're in a place that has nothing. And because the place is stripped of everything, all they can see are the problems. Like, you remember um, Castaway? Don't remember the movie Castaway? With Tom Hanks? Yeah? Some of you are like, no, I haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil it for me. It's 25 years. That's your fault. So he's in a plane. Plane goes down. He's on a desert island, and he has to figure out how to survive. If you remember the movie, like the first half of the movie, everything he sees is a problem because he's on a desert island, right? So it's a problem of where do I get food? Where do I get shelter? Where do I get fire? Where do I get heat? Like everything is a problem. But then over time, he begins to see, even on a desert island, he begins to see actually the potential of everything around him. So much so that a volleyball he sees as a potential to become a friend. An ice skate is an axe to crack open the coconuts. A cave becomes his castle. And eventually, even at the end of the movie, a porta potty washes up onto shore, and the walls of that porta potty become the sails of a boat that he makes that becomes his freedom and salvation from the island. There's just this reality that along the way, Tom Hanks' character had to learn to see what he previously saw as a problem because he was in a desert island. He had to see the potential that existed even where previously he thought nothing was there that could serve him. You know, our lives can do that as well, right? Like our lives can enter seasons that I would describe as a remote place, as a, as a sort of desert island. Places in our life where we feel like we are stripped of something that we had once relied on, that we once needed, that now because we don't have it or because we've lost it, now it's like all we can see are the problems in front of us. Maybe, maybe it's job, maybe it's a certain level of income, maybe it's status, maybe it's your health like something that was taken away. I met a ton of people over Christmas that have actually moved into the area. Kensington was one of the first churches they've come to. They figured Christmas, we'll go there. But I talked to one particular family, a bunch of kids and mom and dad, and like all of them were kind of wrestling through the journey of having left everything back home. 
friends and network and community and relationships and their church back home and, and are here now. And part of what they're struggling with is seeing particular kids, like all the problems that are in front of them because of everything that they've lost. What if even that, maybe that's some of you or maybe it's something else that you feel like you're, you're kind of in a remote place in your own life or there's something that you've lost that you don't have anymore, you don't have access to, it's not a part of your life anymore. Because of that, what you see in front of you are problems. And instead, what if in fact what God is doing is going, no, 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 no. This is not a problem. I want you to start to see the potential of what I'm up to. Sometimes when we're in a, a place that's remote in our life, our response is to do what the disciples encourage Jesus to do, which is to send everybody away. In other words, put them in a place that's not remote. And he said it, put them in a place, send them to a place where there's lodging, where there's food. Like when we're in a remote place in our lives, that's what we wanna do, we wanna get out of it. We wanna go where there's the things that we need, the things that we want, the things that we've lost. But what if those are the very moments where God's going, no, 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 you don't need to leave this place because you don't yet see the potential of what I can do here and what I can create here that wouldn't be created if you had everything you thought you needed. Because our outlook does what? It can change our outcome. Give you a, a quick resource in a book that I've loved reading this last year. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. It's by a guy named Ryan Holiday, put it on the screen. I will warn you, not a Christian author, not a Christian book, uses some colorful language. So, but he writes throughout history looking at significant moments of history and historical figures that faced unbelievable odds that had a choice in front of them to either simply see the problem that was in front of them or to see the potential. And to those who chose to see the potential, how they overcame it and created things that would have never been created. So it's been a super encouraging read. I've loved the read. Um, a friend of mine turned me on to it because he actually knows the author. So there you go, handing it out to you. But I do believe that one of the things that God will possibly lead some of us into this year is a place where in our lives we go, it feels like I'm in a remote place. And in that place, you'll have the choice to either see through your eyes and only see the problems or to ask Jesus to give you his eyes and see the potential of what he may do even in the desert place. I think you look at the disciples and you also see that where they saw the impossible, Jesus saw a solution. You know, you, you, I think in every dynamic of a group, whether it's two people, whether it's 20 people, you've got some people that are going to be the, the planners. Who's the planners in the room? Like you're planning on all the details, right? And then there's other people. I'm probably more the other category. You're the person that's just like, eh, we'll figure it out. Right? You're just going to go with it and fly by the seat of your pants. So the disciples are no different. Philip, he's the planner. And it says here that Philip starts looking around at the crowd when Jesus says to him, hey, here's what we're going to do. You're going to feed him and you're going to take care of it. Since Philip starts looking around, he's doing all the math. He's like, oh, I'm going to carry the one and divide by. He's like, we don't have enough money to even give scraps to some of the people, let alone all of the people. He's looking at the crowd, and not only does he see a problem, he sees an impossible problem that there's no way they can do anything about. Not to mention the fact that not only do they not have the resources, they don't have the skill set. This isn't who they are. They come from a variety of background, all the disciples, from fishermen to tax collectors. None of them are bakers. So God's asking them to respond to a situation that not only is impossible, but it's outside of who they are, what they have, what they've done. And it'd be really easy in that moment to only see there's no way this can get accomplished instead of to see what Jesus saw, which is the solution. And what was the solution? Them. When they're like, how do we feed these many people? We should send them away. Jesus says, no, you do it. 
I think there's more than one time in your life that you've already been faced with a moment where you've had to stare at an impossible situation and you've had to wonder if it can get done or not, but I wonder how many of those moments you thought, has God chosen me to be the solution? I was talking to our uh, lead pastor over at Troy this last week about this idea, and we started together. We were thinking about outer space and the history of humanity, the billions of people that have stared up into the sky, looked at the stars and the moon and the planets, and just thought, beautiful. But how there was one person a few decades ago who looked up into the sky, that same sky, and didn't just think, oh, this is beautiful, but actually thought, we should go there. And I think I can get us there. His name was Sergei Kozlov. That's why in 1961, we sent a person up into space and brought them back safely because he built a rocket that came out of a dream that he could overcome the impossible. And I think fundamentally, that's not all that different than what Mike is doing, what he's been able to be a part of. Looking at just a freezer full of food that's not gonna accomplish a whole heck of a lot, but eventually believing that even though there is a sea of impossibility in front of him, he was gonna do something about it and be a part of doing something about it. He was gonna be a part of the solution. What Mike didn't tell you and what he probably would never talk much about is the fact that over the history of what they have been doing in Elevate Detroit, they estimate that they have served and brought together over 200,000 people. Listen to me, 200,000 people. That's filling Little Caesars Arena 10 times over. Not because he had all the resources and all the answers, but because he had a willingness to be a part of the solution. And I think sometimes when we look at life, not only is it the impossible moments that God says, hey, I have picked you for this moment, but it's the frustrating moments. I think sometimes those moments that God says, I have actually picked you, anointed you to be part of the solution, to even be the solution, is birthed as much out of the times of seeing an impossibility as seeing something that's frustrating. Like those things in life that just shouldn't be or should be different. The things that just irritate you. The things that would be easy to only complain about and hope somebody else fixes. Like Tim Ballard, The Sound of Freedom. You see the movie Sound of Freedom? It was all about rescuing kids out of human slavery, human trafficking. It's a real story based on Tim Ballard's life. Tim Ballard saw a problem that irritated him to no end, but he also saw an ocean of a problem and felt like he only had a bucket. But he used that bucket to become a part of the solution. And to date, his foundation and organization has rescued 4,000 kids out of slavery. 4,000 kids, all of which would have been abused, most of which would have died. When, when we begin to look at problems and only see the impossibility, you neglect the fact that many times the very reason you see what's impossible is because God's anointed you to be a part of the solution. And your outlook changes what? Your outcome. I think the disciples also saw too little where Jesus saw just enough. You know, it's interesting that Jesus sends his disciples out, it says, he says, hey, I want you to go take inventory of what's out there, which is interesting because he knew as well as they did, there's not gonna be enough food to be found out here. Everybody's hungry. Nobody packed a lunch. This wasn't supposed to be a full day away, so everybody didn't plan well. But he still sends his disciples nonetheless to take inventory of what is there, even though he knows there's not gonna be enough in their mind. And what do they find? They find this one random little kid who clearly is the planner in the group. He's got just enough for himself. And that's what they bring back to Jesus. And the report back to him is, we've only found enough for this little boy. 
The word only can be a very dangerous word at times. Because what they didn't realize is that's all they needed. Because what they also had was Jesus. Sometimes when we look out at our life, it's something that we feel like we don't have enough of. And you can fill in the blank as to what it is. And it changes from moments to moments. I think what God would have us to do in those moments is not just sit there and look at what we don't have enough of, but start to take inventory of what we do have. Because so often, the things that we think we have enough of, that's a mentality more than a reality. It's how we have taught ourselves to think instead of the reality of our situation. I mean, think about it for example. The poor wish they had the money that you complain you don't have enough of. The dying wish they had the time that you complain there isn't enough of in the day. The jobless complain, the jobless, not rather complain, they wish they had the job that you complain doesn't value you enough or appreciate you enough. The single person would love to have the relationship that you complain hasn't changed enough or fast enough. Like, have you ever thought about this? There is somebody right now in this world that is actually asking God, even begging him for the very things that are the opportunities, the relationships, and the experiences that you have in your life. And I think sometimes there are things that God wants to do in our lives. Listen, they hinge on us being able to take inventory of what we do have more than complain about what we don't and then offer that little bit up to Jesus, believing he can do more than we could ever imagine and we could ever accomplish in our own strength. There is work that God will only be able to accomplish through our lives. I believe this. When we stop complaining about what we don't have and start taking inventory of what we do and then saying, multiply it, God. I don't think it's enough, but I want to have your eyes and not mine because outlook will always affect outcome. The last area that I think Jesus is trying to raise the bar with his disciples' vision is where they see a crowd to contend with, he sees people to care for. The start of the whole text said that when Jesus with his disciples, he brings them together to go on this essential retreat. We're going to pull back. We're going to pull away. And the reason is, is because if you read the text just beforehand, you'll see that what's previously happened is he sent them on mission. Like he gave them power and authority and he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually, for one of the first times ever, I'm gonna send you to do what I've been doing. And you're gonna go do it without me. And so they have these amazing experiences. They go into towns where some of them welcome them in. Others literally drive them out. Like can you imagine the, just the, the conflict of emotion and experience where some people are like, yeah, we wanna hear. And other people are like, not in my town. And then in some of the towns that they're welcomed into, they're able to share who Jesus is and people begin to believe and people begin to come and small groups start to form that will eventually become churches. We're also told that there were sick people healed. Like this isn't the disciples just watching Jesus do the miraculous. They're actually doing it themselves now. So they have this whole experience. They've been apart from one another. They're exhausted. If you've ever been on a mission trip overseas, it's, it's like one of those kind of moments where you're just like filled up emotionally but you're also drained physically so they're coming back from that. They've been apart. They're excited to see each other. They sit down. They debrief. Hey, tell me what happened. They report everything. It sounds like things go for so long. They, they don't even think to eat. They're just so excited to be back together to report what's happened. And then at one point, they're like, hey, we haven't even eaten yet. And then you've also got Jesus, who has just recently found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been executed. So he's dealing with this personal grief that's just happened. So all of this is happening in that moment, which is why he says, Let's, let's get out of here. Let's go retreat. Just us. We deserve a break. And they're like, yes. And they peace out. 
But the crowd sees him leaving, and they're like, wait, that's Jesus. He heals people, and they follow him, and it says they actually beat him to where he's going. So they're all there at the time. Now, Jesus would have been well within his rights to say, you know what, guys, tomorrow, I'm so sorry. I'm exhausted. They're exhausted. I'm grieving the loss of my cousin. I love you all, but not today. But instead of seeing that crowd as a group to contend with, like, oh, my gosh, not more people. Here they come. He sees them as people to care for and leads his disciples to do the same. I think for all of us, there are people in our lives that we can see so easily as just people to have to contend with. And maybe it's because they're people that, maybe it's because they're people that just constantly take from you. And it's like every time they come, you just know they're gonna want something else. Or maybe it's because it has nothing to do with them. Maybe it's you, maybe your, your cup is empty. And there's just moments in life where somebody comes with a need and it's just like, I'm spent. You ever, you ever realize, you ever notice that sometimes when you need to be away from people the most, is when people need the most from you. Maybe it's just a moment like that for you where you're like, my cup's just empty. And so you, you would tend to see people more as just needing to be contended with. Or maybe it's, maybe it's because they're just, maybe it's just because it's a person that irritates you. We've all got people that just, for some reason, they just push that button. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody in this room. Maybe they're sitting next to you. Don't move. Maybe it's somebody at your church. Maybe it's somebody at your work. Maybe it's somebody maybe it's somebody who just has a different view politically, sexually, religiously. People that would be easier to just push away or to just see as, oh, I've got to contend with them again. I've got to deal with them again. Instead of with compassion, realize maybe God put them in your path for you to care for them. I don't know exactly what needs to change about all of us in the ways that we see and what we see. But I think I can safely go out on a limb and say the one thing that I think all of us could learn to see different this next year is one another. Is to see each other differently. And no matter how justified or unjustified it may be for you to say, not today, I just don't have it in me, I, just, you're con- I can't contend with you today, is to not demean people, not de- people, not vilify people, not push people away, but when God brings someone into your life, even if your cup is empty, that you change your eyes and believe he put them there, that you would care for them, because when you give, you're filled back up. I'm telling you, your outlook will always change your outcome. I don't want to be the same next year, and I don't think many of you do either, but if we do nothing different, we'll be nothing different. And I think truly becoming more like Christ involves starting to see more like Christ. And these are only four areas to do it. But our lives are full of places where we can begin to change our outlook and change our outcome. And this next year, I hope we can celebrate that we took that serious and we leaned into that and we saw God do amazing things in us and amazing things through us because we asked him, help us see less with our eyes and help us see more with yours. So Father, I pray that you would do that work. I trust you can. I trust you will. I trust you long to. Help us be people that do more than go through motions or are just merely religious or just people that believe things about you, but that are men and women who truly walk in the footsteps of Jesus saying who he is, so will I. Begin to change our eyes and our mind and our ways. In Jesus' name.
You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.